Well, we've been in an ongoing series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I think many of you have been here with us. If not, if you're a guest, we're kind of arriving at the tail end of the series. We've still got a couple of months left in it, but we're wrapping up. And this morning, we launch a kind of a sub-series within the series of expectancy in the Gospel of Mark. And that sub-series is focused on Mark chapter 13. And Mark chapter 13 is a rather lengthy passage, it's a rather lengthy, lengthy chapter, and it's a chapter that Jesus uses to ready his disciples for the end times. Now, when we hear end times in our day, we hear end times, and I think our minds have immediately been shaped and formed by what we see in Hollywood. Many might immediately think of a zombie apocalypse or some sort of other end-time event that we would see on TV or we would see in the movies, but Jesus had very different things in mind other than zombies running around and chasing people when he spoke of end times, and he wanted to ready his disciples uh, for just end times events and being, being able to understand and discern the times that they would be, that really the world would be entering into. And so this morning, we're going to begin uh, a subsequent series, and my desire is to, to look at it, do our best to understand it. Uh, now, I understand when you, when I immediately mention that we're going to spend the next couple of weeks looking at uh, what Jesus says about the end times, I, I was talking with Dan Wedlake, one of the men in our congregation, and in fact, I just, I want to give him credit. He's been a great uh, resource to me with a number of things that he studied and researched over the years. But I remember telling Dan, I said, I know that for many, there is going to think we're covering end times. We're going to cover A to Z in the book of Revelation and everything in between. And if that's your expectation, I, I hope to just maybe scratch your itch to look at end times, but we're really not going to be able to dive into that level of detail. But we're going to continue to let the gospel of Mark be our guide and, and look at what it is that Jesus presents. But when we look at what we're about to look at, I want to give you two things to consider, really as two cautions to consider when it comes to studying specifically the end times. The first thing is we need to consider what we read in light of all of Scripture. We need to consider what we read in Scripture in light of all of Scripture. One of the, the uh, a phrase that will be used oftentimes is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And that's what we look at. When we find something in the Bible that we don't understand, we begin to look and expand and recognize that it's been covered in multiple different areas. And so we allow that piece to shape and understand what it is that is being said. So as we look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 13 regarding the end times, we're going to take a little bit of time to look at some other passages along the way over the next few weeks. But I would encourage you, do some study on your own. Take some time to look on your own. If you have a Bible that has reference points, or you can even do a Google search, and you'll find a number of verses that will fit with the topics that we're covering. My prayer is that in the end, you will walk away with a desire to look further and to know more on the things that we're talking about. Um, and then secondly, I would encourage you to remember the practical application of what Jesus was saying to his original disciples. When Jesus is sharing what he's about, what we're going to look at, what he shares with his original disciples, his focus was not laying out a timeline so that they could say, at this point, here's the Antichrist, this is who the Antichrist is, this is what's happening, to be able to, to lay out a timeline of events. His focus is found in verse 5. We'll look at it in just a moment. But he says, don't be deceived. His point is that we would not, that his disciples, his followers would not be deceived. He gave them the information ahead of time so they would continue to grow in being familiar and understanding who he is as their Savior and as their Lord. So when it comes to those two admonitions in our own lives, I believe that we have immediate application in our own lives. 
I've talked with many individuals over the years, whether it be in this topic or another one, who have, who have arrived at a very distorted or an imbalanced doctrine of who God is because they have not taken what they have arrived at from one scripture and counseled it in light of all of scripture. And in, in turn, they've been deceived by what it is they've arrived at. They'll focus in on one attribute or one part of God and all the while alleviating or not even paying attention to the other dynamics that Scripture gives us. And so we can take immediate application into our own lives, not just when it comes to studying the end times, but also when it comes to anything in Scripture that God desires to speak and shape shape our lives through His Word and His desires that we're not deceived, not only in end time events, but when it comes to anything in life that the world will always try to produce and offer counterfeits to the reality of the presence of God in your life and what he seeks to do in your life. And God's desire is to better inform and guide your life and to shape your life so that you're not deceived by the world's ways. Keep your, if you have your Bible open, you can stay in Mark chapter 13. But I want you to hear what 2 Timothy chapter 3 says regarding God's word. Verse 16, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That his word is intended to shape and influence every part of your life. It's not meant to be restricting, it's meant to be life-giving. He's meant to give life to every part of your lives. And it begins by understanding and spending a lifetime investing in knowing God's word. It doesn't mean that we ever become experts, but it means we invest a lifetime in growing and knowing God's word. One of the things that I will consistently say from this pulpit is that you will, only, you will always only be as strong as your commitment to God's word. That in your life, you will only always be as strong as your commitment to God's word. So commit your life to growing and knowing God's word. Commit your family to growing and knowing the things of God through his word. Commit your marriage to growing and knowing the things of God through his word. So with that, let's look in Mark chapter 13, beginning in verses 1 through 4. And then we'll pause and talk about it for a few moments. Beginning in chapter 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And we'll come back and look in just a moment. I think we can read with this encounter, count these things that Jesus is just now telling his disciples. And we see that he's walking through the temple with the disciples. And he, he really blurts out as they're just walking along, catches them completely by surprise. They're admiring just the beauty of the temple. The temple had a number of pillars and colonnades around. And the, the pillars were so large that it would take three to four grown men to stretch arm to arm around one pillar just to be able to show the, the significance of how big it is. And as they're walking through and the disciples are admiring it, really just always taking in the beauty of it, Jesus just, as they're walking along, he says, hey, listen, there's going to come a time this whole building's going to be knocked down and there's not going to be one stone left on top of another. Now, we might look at the disciples in that moment and we might think that they're still a little bit thick-headed because after all, what we've seen all through Scripture is that Jesus means what he says and he says what he means. He doesn't mince words. And so that for Jesus to say this, that they should take it at face value. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what's going to happen. 
But it would seem that they're kind of just quiet and oblivious to what he says, and really only four of them later, perhaps they were a delegation from the rest of the disciples, but four of them later come to Jesus and say, could you elaborate a little bit more on what it is that you just said? Now take, your, take your, a moment and put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. We have been, we've had the luxury of spending uh, several months in the book of Mark, and it was really a few months ago, I believe it was in March or so, that we were in Mark 11 and we were looking at the triumphal entry when Jesus is being hailed as a Messiah to thousands upon thousands of pilgrims who are come, have come for Passover to Jerusalem. And so he's riding in on this donkey and there's this massive celebration of Jesus as the Messiah. And the disciples in that moment, I would imagine, are thinking, no, this is it. Jesus is finally taking his rightful place as the Messiah to, to Israel and the Messiah to all mankind. So you have that. That would have happened at the beginning of this moment, the beginning of that week. Then you have Jesus go into the temple, and he begins to exercise what they would view as being a messianic authority. He's, he's challenging the religious leaders. He's overthrowing people who are there doing what they shouldn't be doing. I mean, he is like laying down the law. And he challenges individuals and moves with such an authority that it leaves others speechless and in awe. I would imagine the disciples are really thinking, this is the moment. Jesus is finally choosing to acknowledge himself and walk as the Messiah that we've been expecting. Then Jesus has just on the heels of that, so moment after moment, day after day, and within just a handful of days, not only has Jesus ridden into Jerusalem being hailed as the coming Messiah, not only has he then just exercised authority over the religious leaders and those who were were really uh, taking advantage of the people, then Jesus begins to have one after another the different groups of leaders come to him and challenge him. The Pharisees come, the Sadducees come, the different ones come and keep challenging Jesus and trying to lay questions and traps before him. And Jesus in such wisdom and wit begins to answer them, and he not only takes their questions and answers them with clarity, but he then, then exposes their ignorance of Scripture and their ignorance of the law. Just before this moment, Jesus has then begun to talk about being the son of David and, and just all of these things that in the disciples' mind, Jesus is now walking in the authority of the Messiah, and they were perhaps just moments away from seeing things fall in place for his messianic reign to begin at a time when he would rule and they would be right there with him on his right side there as, as an exercise of his authority in the place. Then all of a sudden, without warning, you've had all of these moments where Jesus is speaking and it's building up to this moment. Then all of a sudden, without warning, as they're walking through the temple, that Jesus says, look at verse number two again. Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be le- here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. You can imagine just the shock of the disciples in that moment. What Jesus references in verse 2 when he tells them will take place with the temple did in fact happen. Josephus records it. Josephus, a Jewish historian, recorded it. And there came a time when the Roman Empire came in and ultimately annihilated Jerusalem because of a rebellion that had risen up. The city flowed with blood and the temple was ultimately knocked down. And, and historians say that not only was the temple knocked down in pieces, but the pieces were then broken up piece by piece so that they could then extract the gold that was there to be able to take with them. So what Jesus said would happen it did happen. But what Jesus was saying, not only in this passage, but in everything when it comes to the end times, is he's speaking not only about the end of the temple or the end of the Jewish nation in that moment, but he's also speaking about the end of the world and his return, that there's a sense of a double meaning in what he says. 
But I want you to notice something, and and we'll put it on screen now, but we're going to come back to this verse in just a moment with what we're going to look at. If you look in Mark chapter 13, verse 7, if you have your Bible open, you can see it there. In Mark chapter 13, verse 7, Jesus says this. In in the midst of what he says, he says, Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. He says, Such things must happen. Jesus was indicating that the wars that would come, the destruction that would come, the betrayal that would come, the disasters that would come, the loss that would come, the death that would come, all of it. He said it must happen. It must happen because it is the natural outworking of a sin-sick world. Jesus is saying this is the, the things that we're about to see happen, the things that I'm about to describe to you that are going to take place are the natural outworkings of a sin-sick world. So the natural outworking of a world that tries to live without God is not to order, but to disorder. It's not to, it's not to freedom, it's to chaos. It's not to peace, but it's to, to disorder. And that's what Jesus is saying. He said, these type of things must happen because this is a world and it's a humanity that has rejected God and has ultimately put self and sin in the place where God should be. We've looked at this before, but in the end, the Bible makes it clear that humanity, when it's left to its own devices, turns away from God, not towards God. That the natural drift of the human heart is towards the sinful nature, not towards God. One of the consistent principles that we see in Scripture is is found in uh, Galatians 6, is one passage we'll look at. But one of the consistent principles we see in Scripture is the principle of sowing and reaping. If you have your Bible, you can look there with me in Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse number 7. It says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. We've said it before when it comes to the principle of sowing and reaping. But you cannot break the principle of sowing and reaping. In the end, it will only break you. That it's the principle of what you plant, you will reap. What you sow, you will ultimately receive the harvest from. The reason the nation of Israel, along with the temple, uh, was destroyed was because of persistent sin. Because of persistent turning its back on God. Romans 6.23 says, and this fits to what takes place with the temple, what takes place with Israel, and it applies to your life. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That means that the constant outcome of sin from turning away from God is death. It may, in the moment, you may seem like there has not been a consequence. It may seem as if you've been able to cheat the principle of sowing and reaping. But in the end, the Bible tells us that God does not look at your life from the slice of time that you're living it. He looks at your life in light of all eternity. And he says, in the end, the, the, the wages of sin, the wages of turning your back on God, the outcome is death. Not just death in this life. That's secondary. The primary death the Bible speaks of is separation from God. An eternity without Him, an eternity of where you've turned your back on God. Now God, because of your persistent sin, must turn His back on you. And so it is with all humanity and with our world that when evil entered the world, that there came a point where God had to make a decision because the principle is that the wages of sin is death. God had to make a decision when sin entered the world. When Adam and Eve made the choice to sin and ultimately brought each of us into that sinful choice as well, God had the choice in that moment to bring an end to the world and an end to sin in that moment, or he had the choice to bring fallen humanity back to himself through Christ, but ultimately the judgment of, still, of sin still had to take place. 
And so God chose the latter. He chose to draw you and me to give us an opportunity to come to him through Jesus Christ, to find forgiveness and grace, and to be restored into the relationship with him that he desires. But the Bible still makes it clear that in the end, the wages of sin is death. That God has made the choice now that for the believer here, that if you've chosen to place your faith in Jesus Christ, and when, when you look at the cross and when God looks at the cross, that is where the penalty for your sin has been paid. That is where the wages of your sin equal death. And now you can live in the freedom and the grace that God has extended to you. The Bible makes it clear and teaches as we look at it as a New Testament Christian that we can focus on the love and the grace and the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ. And friends, while that is completely true, We cannot forget that to not know Jesus Christ is to remain under the wrath of God and the judgment of sin. To not know Christ is to remain under the wrath of God and the judgment of sin. The great push for missions is not so that people become nicer, attend churches more, read their Bibles more. The great push of missions and the great push of evangelism is so that, that individuals will come to know Christ and escape the wrath of God upon their sin. The Bible tells us that that all sin brings death. If you look with me in John chapter 3, we'll look at verse 36 in just a moment. But in John chapter 3, many are very familiar with John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that is very true. But just a verse or two after it, it says, Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ stand condemned already. It says they still stand under the condemnation that comes with living a life for sin. In John 3.36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. There are ones in our world who would tell you that in the end, in eternity, God in his wisdom, that, that love wins all. There's a popular pastor right now who has turned his back on Christianity and now preaches a message of inclusivism. He says that in the end, God in his love, he has a way of including every religion, every faith, every individual, so in the end that his love wins out and his love conquers all. But friends, as nice as that may sound and as pleasant as that may sound to the ears, that is not the gospel. The Bible says that without Jesus Christ and without faith in Jesus Christ, all will perish. John 3.36, the verse we just looked at, says, whoever rejects the Son will not see life. It says if you reject the Son in this life, you will not see eternal life in the next. That the wrath of God remains. The only way you escape the wrath of God upon your sin and the judgment of God upon your sin is to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. And faith in Jesus Christ involves first a repentance and turning from your sin, and secondly involves a turning towards Christ in faith. A believing in your heart that Jesus Christ is the only solution and the only answer to every single piece and part of your life that he's not just an answer to the problems that you can't solve. He's not just an answer to the things that you can't sort out. He's not just a peace to the things that you can't bring, bring, bring peace. To recognize Jesus in that light is to not make him Savior of all. But friends, he won't be Savior or Lord of pieces. He will be Lord and Savior of all. So it's to bring every part and every piece of your life to him and to recognize your need for Jesus Christ is absolute. It's every part of your life, the good that you see, the bad that you don't, that every part of your life needs to be reconciled to Jesus Christ through the cross of Christ, that, his ju- that God's judgment upon your sin is applied through Christ on the cross. The Bible says to reject Jesus Christ is to remain under the condemnation and to remain under the wrath of God. 
And friends, God always has to deal with sin. He always has to deal with sin. And so you can choose to do it on your own and find that it's not good enough, or you can choose to rest in the way and the provision that God has offered through Jesus Christ. And my prayer and my hope is for every single person here, whether you have attended here since the time you were born, or you're a guest who just happened to walk through the doors this morning, my prayer and my hope is that you won't wait until the service is over to make sure that your life is right with Jesus Christ and that you place your faith in him. My prayer is that even as you're sitting there in this moment, that you would recognize the conviction and the drawing of the Holy Spirit in your heart and that you will respond right now in this moment by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. It's placing your life and your soul in God's hands. But let's read on. Let's look in Mark chapter 13 one more time. I got lost in my Bible here a little bit. Mark chapter 13, verse 5. Jesus continues. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. You, will be, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and to be flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel, must, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at that time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will, will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. See, Jesus doesn't give a timetable. We've already looked at this. Jesus doesn't give a timetable for the events that are going to take place. And his focus is not on the events themselves. His focus is not on the established events themselves, but rather as those as being markers for his disciples that the end is near. For those who are living in that time, those who are living in that moment, that they would recognize that the end is near and to recognize that while the world in their, li- in their life around them may become chaotic, their faith in Jesus can still be anchored and sure because he's still in control. So Jesus reminds them. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be misled. Don't be led astray. And I believe one of the greatest ways that we can be deceived today when it comes to the end times, when it comes to, to thinking about the things that Jesus says, I really think there's two ways we can be deceived. Is number one, we can read this and we can think that it's speaking of some distant future event that's about to, that could take place. Some event far way off in the distant future and we say, oh, it's just later. We've got time now. That's one way to be deceived. Because Jesus was wanting his disciples in that moment to learn to live with a watchfulness outwardly and a watchfulness inwardly. That their hearts and their lives were constantly ready and looking for Christ in all things. And then I believe the second way that you and I can be deceived is to listen to a message like this or one that goes even into even greater detail and to leave knowing a little bit more about the end times and to settle for knowing more but not for growing more. See, God's desire in our life is that with everything we encounter in his word, it's not just to leave with a bigger head, with bigger head knowledge, but it's to leave with a heart that's just a bit more aligned with who he is. 
with a life that's a little bit more in sync with who he calls and desires for us to be. So that in the end, regardless of what happens in our life and around our world, that our lives continue to live in sync with his spirit who is alive in us. And so Jesus gives us, and I'll give you these very quickly, um, Jesus gives us uh, a number of signs in this list of what he's just read. He gives a number of signs that we can look for as signals or as markers to the birth pains, the beginning of the end. So I just want to give these to you very quickly, and, and then we'll conclude with a time of prayer and an opening of the front and the altars for those who want to respond. The first sign that Jesus tells his disciples and he gives us is that we can, you can look for is, number one, false messiahs false messiahs. And he says that they'll come claiming I am he. And for us to think that it's going to be a matter of an individual coming and saying, I am Jesus Christ returned. There's been a few who've done that. But that's not what Jesus necessarily is identifying. In Jesus's day and age, the the individuals, when they heard of the Messiah, they thought of an individual. And some even suggest they even thought of a group who would bring peace and prosperity and hope and would be the answer for what they needed in that moment. Friends, the Bible tells us that many false messiahs will come to bring about an age of hope and prosperity. They promise to bring about an age of hope and prosperity and equality and peace. And that can be in forms of religious leaders. It can be in forms of misled pastors. It can be in forms of political leaders, political parties, political agendas. It can be in a number of things. But the Bible tells us that if it does not point back to Jesus and give him the credit for who he is, but it promises to be the hope, then in the end, the Bible tells us that that's a false Messiah, that that's a false hope that we don't place our faith in. The Bible speaks in a number of places about them, but I want to show you one very quickly in 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Just, just one verse, verse 1. It says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. And this word that's used here for following deceiving spirits, and if you could just leave that on the the screen for just a moment, you see where it says following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. The word that's used here for deceiving spirits is the same word. It's the word planos. It's the word that we use and we get where we we use for planets. For the planets, when you look in the night sky and you see the, the bright planet that's there among the stars, or if you happen to look through a telescope and you can see a planet in more detail, The word that is used here for for deceiving spirits is the same word we get for our planets. And the reason that is, is that in in, um, Jesus' day, when individuals would go out and they would travel the seas, they would use, the navigators would use the stars to chart their course. And they recognized that, they didn't recognize at the time that they were looking at planets, but what they called them is these deceivers or these false stars that they were giving off light But because they were moving, and they didn't realize it at the time, but moving in their own orbit across the sky rather than being fixed as a star somewhere in a distant land, that if they tried to use those moving stars to chart their course, they soon learned that it led to destruction and even death. So they began to call them false, uh, they began to call them deceivers and false lights because they recognized that while they were giving off light, it was not something that they could chart their course from or chart their lives from or navigate their vessel from. And that's what Jesus says, is that in our lives, in this time, in this day, even in this moment, there are individuals and there are things and, and a number of things that we look at that can promise to be a hope or promise to be a future, promise to be something that we can navigate our life off of, something we can chart our life off of. And Jesus says, if it's anything other than me, then it's a false hope and it's a false Messiah. And Jesus says the false Messiahs are, number one, a sign of the coming in. Secondly, 
Jesus says that the, the second sign is that there will be wars, a war and world violence. That there will be an increase of wars and nation will be rising up against nation. And what Jesus speaks of, speaks of plurally, that there will be many. I think one can look at history, not only in the past, but also in the world in which we live. And can see the number of wars and the number of nations in unrest uh, in the midst of everything that is happening in our world. And I believe that when you look at what Jesus says about wars and world violence and the things that we see in our news today, it's a continual reminder that a world that's not centered on Christ cannot lead to peace. A world that's centered on, not centered on Christ cannot produce peace in and of itself. And so when we see the world news and we see the wars and we see the, the rumors of wars, it's, it's a reminder. And Jesus says, don't be alarmed. He says, don't be panicked when you read the news. Don't be panicked by the latest terrorist attack. Don't be panicked by the latest rumors of war. He says they're birth pains. They're the beginning of the signs that he, his return is drawing close. Third, Jesus says there'll be natural disasters. There'll be earthquakes and famines. And again, they are signs and reminders that in, in our world, we're living in a fallen, broken world. In the story of creation, in Genesis chapter 1, we see that when, after God created the world, and in Genesis 2, when, when sin came, and then humanity and, and entered into sin, that the Bible tells us in Genesis as well as in Romans that, that the entire world is under the weight of sin. The un- entire world, all of creation, suffers from our choice of sin. And so Jesus says that the natural disasters are a reflection of the effect of sin as sin runs its course in our world. That is a sign of his drawing close. Number four, Jesus says there'll be persecution by civil and religious authorities. He says it'll become commonplace and even celebrated by when governments and religious authorities bring down and and identify those who who are identified with Christ. He says there'll be persecution at the hands of government and at the hands of religious authorities. We see this already in the book of Acts, and I believe we can see it in our world, that when it comes to the place where the Christian faith is no longer considered politically right or is no longer considered tolerant, that then the world system becomes intolerant of Christianity, that faith in Christ will continue to seem more and more archaic and less and less of a fit with a new way of doing things. And the Bible says, Jesus says that we could go on to expect that there will come a time when individuals will begin to abandon their faith. Jesus, in speaking in this very same passage in in Matthew 24, says that the love of many will grow cold, that even the elect, if they so choose, they they will be deceived because they'll look to other things. They'll look to other things as the answer. They'll look to other things other than Jesus. Look what he says regarding persecution from the world and its systems in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Remember what I told you. And Jesus tells them, he says that the measure of your discord with the world is a direct reflection of the measure of your accord with him. He says, the easier you fit in with this world, then then it's a sign that the less you're fitting with who Christ is calling you to be. The less you fit with the world's systems, the less you fit with the world's ways, the the less you fit with the world's values is really a direct reflection of your accord and your oneness with Christ. Because we live in a world that is continued to turning away from Christ. Number five, Jesus says another sign of his drawing near is world evangelism that the gospel will continue to be brought into places that it's not yet been. 
when you look in our world today or even our church today, that this is our Mission Sunday. A time when we reflect on our commitment to missions and our specific focus on unreached people groups. Places where the gospel has yet to be brought. When you look at places like our Cairo Training Center and other missionaries that we're standing with, the focus is continuing to fulfill Christ's command to take the gospel into all places, into all regions, into all people groups. Through the use of media and new avenues today, I believe that the once distant lands are no longer distant. That I truly believe the biggest obstacle we face today in bringing the gospel to those who have yet hear it, that the biggest obstacle we face today is, is convenience that it's an inconvenience to those who have to go because the gospel is yet to be brought to places that are difficult or hard. That's the reason they're unreached. And so it's a matter of individuals who are willing to let their lives be disrupted, to let their, their, their plans be set aside, and to say, yes, Jesus, I will go and I will be a part of bringing your gospel to places and people who have not heard, not because it's convenient, but because it's right. Not because it's convenient, but because it's a privilege. It's a privilege to bring the gospel and to share your life with someone who's yet to see and yet to know. Jesus says six. He says there'll be an increase in persecution as another sign that we can see images online and around the world of the latest Christians to be executed for their faith. And we can learn now that there are more Christians who have died this year than the past centuries combined in all of history. But the focus that Jesus says when it comes to persecution, the focus is not on the persecution. The focus is not on loss of life. In verse 11, Jesus says the focus is on Holy Spirit dependence on depending upon his Holy Spirit to guide and empower you in what to say and what to do, even when you don't know what to say or what to do. The focus in persecution is abiding in Christ and leaning more upon him. Number seven, Jesus says another sign is divided families, that there will be betrayal among family members, that it will become commonplace to betray and turn over a believer, a Christian of the family who has become a believer in Christ so they can face excommunication or they can face execution for faith in Christ and it will be considered honored and honorable. Jesus says that practice will seep into families and be so widely accepted that it will become a common trait of the end times. That it won't be the exception, it will be the norm. Number eight, the last one Jesus says, the last sign, is that there will be an endurance and salvation, verse 13. He says that there will be such empowerment of the Holy Spirit for his believers, for those who depend upon him, and they lean upon the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in their life, not just as a church thing, not just as a praying thing, but dependent on the Holy Spirit for the empowerment of their entire life, for every part of their life. That Jesus says there will be such an empowerment of the Holy Spirit and such a dependence on him that their standing firm will be a sign and a witness to many. And so Jesus says, In verse 8, he says, when you see all of these things taking place, these are all signs and these are beginning signs, the birth pains, that there's something greater that's about to happen. We're going to talk about that next week, the, the greater thing that's about to happen. But for now, one concluding application that I'd love to give you before we close is that we can look at this or we can hear things like this or we can read passages like we've looked at from what Jesus says and we might be fascinated by it You might be scared by it. You might be disinterested in all of it. But the Bible tells us very specifically what the Christian's response is. And that's found in 2 Peter chapter 3. I just want to read this to you as a closing section before we pray. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse number 10. 
says when it comes to the end of the days and the return of Christ. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Just pause there for a moment. It says the earth and everything done in it laid bare. Everything done in it. That means everything done in your life, everything you lived for, everything that you've served, every part of your life, it says, will be laid bare. It will be laid open before God. And it says, since everything will be, be destroyed this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in, looking, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. It says that our response is a readiness. Our response is to live a holy and godly life now. Our response is to make sure that our lives are aligned with who he is now. Twice in, the, in what we've just read, twice it says that for the Christian, they should look forward to this. And you might sit there and you might think, how could the Christian possibly look forward to the destruction of everything we know? How could the Christian possibly look forward to the end of the world that, in the end of time that we know it? Then we look forward to it because, number one, it's a reminder that God is a God who keeps his word. And it's a reminder to you in your life that there may be things even in this life that you recognize and you know that God has promised to you. Perhaps promises that hang over your family, that hang over your life, that hang over perhaps even your finances. There's promises that God has made to you that you know he's made to you, but you've yet to see them fulfilled. Let what the Bible says about the end times be a reminder to you that God is a God who keeps his word. He's a God who always keeps his word, and he's a God who always fulfills his word. But then secondly, it tells us that as we look forward to it, that we're to be ready by living a holy and godly life now. You know, in, in serving in the military, I've had times where I've talked with young men or young women who are getting ready to go into the military and they're getting ready to head off to basic training and they'll look at their life and they'll say, when I get to, to basic training, and I've talked to them about their importance of their commitment to Christ and standing firm in Christ, and I'll really tell them about the immorality that's so available and prevalent for those who are in the military. And they'll say, when I get there, I'm going to be a beacon of light and, a, and I'm going to stand firm for Christ and I'm going to be a testimony. I'm going to be a witness for Christ now. And they give me the list of what it is they're going to do. And when I hear that, and I, I just encourage them, I say, listen, if you can't live for Christ now before you're in, what makes you think you'll possibly live for Christ then? And friends, for every single believer that's here, when it comes to the end time things that we're talking about and what Jesus speaks of, you might look at your life and perhaps you're one of those ones who will be at the end times. You'll be living in those moments. And I believe many of these things Jesus is talking about we're living in now. But you might say when that time comes, when the persecution comes and when there's all these, these things that are on the line, that in that moment I'm going to depend on the Holy Spirit for power and I'm going to live, I'm going to make a test, be a testimony and my life's going to be a witness to him then. Then I would encourage you to make sure that your life is depending on the power of the Holy Spirit now. Make sure that you're depending on His power now. Make sure that you're depending upon His Word now. 
If you want to be ready for the end times, then make sure that your heart and your life are completely committed to Jesus every day, every moment, right now. The moment the Holy Spirit brings something to mind in your life, even as you're sitting here today, perhaps midweek, perhaps tonight before you go to bed, that any moment the Holy Spirit puts his finger on something in your life and says, this needs to be dealt with. This isn't right. The best way you can be ready for the end times is to respond right then in that moment to how the Holy Spirit's leading and how he's guiding, to deal with things as he brings them to light now. To depend on the Holy Spirit then means to depend on the Holy Spirit now because he's the same Spirit who's with us right now in this moment as we're standing here, as we're sitting here, as we're worshiping him. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me as I prepare to close. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. And God, I thank you that your word speaks to every part of our lives and every part of our time. And I pray that as we've looked at the truth that your word brings and the truth of your word, not just for future things and not just to know, but I pray that in light of the things we've looked at, that by your spirit you would examine us right now and that you would reveal to us anything, any part of our lives that's not in line with you.